Good evening. I'm Pastor Gillespie, St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin, uh, a rainy Random Lake this evening. <laughs> uh, we're here and for our Bible study, actually, um, Bible study in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter two, so I invite you to, if you'd like, grab a tasty beverage. I have water here, which, by which I can remember my baptism. It's a little late for coffee. I've had many cups today already, uh, or maybe a, a nice herbal tea or something like that. And uh, also grab your Bible. Uh, I'll have it up here on the screen, but uh, of course you can follow along with your preferred translation at home. I actually encourage that if you've got a different translation, then if there's a question uh, in a difference of translation, then you can post it in the chat uh, on either Facebook or YouTube down below, and we can interact with uh, maybe the possibilities of translation, because there's many. All right, so here's, here's our text. Um, we're going to go back just a couple of verses. Last week we covered verses uh, 1 through 4, plus a, maybe a little bit more. Um, today we're going to back up a little bit just so you get some context, and then we'll go back, and then we'll go forward into what we're going to look at today. All right, so let's begin with prayer, actually. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word by which we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we see all the ways that he fulfills uh, all of history, actually, for our good. And we ask that uh, he would enlighten our hearts, that we would see how he has elevated all humanity um, through his sacrificial death to be high priests with you, um, for you, in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, yes. And before I make a comment, um, I'm hoping that the internet will survive tonight, that the children will not be doing school in the evening, having been already fatigued with all their online learning throughout the day. <laughs> uh, so maybe uh, we'll be all right. All right, good. Let's uh, back up to verse 2, 1 through 4, just for context here. Therefore, we must pay closer attention. Is that a good translation? Yeah, we'll just use ESV for now. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Okay, now again, therefore, is an answer to the end of chapter one. Uh, are not all those ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Referring to the angels. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because angels are, of course, messengers. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so, such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of, of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, so um, that is uh, this exhortation, if you like, to, for the congregation, for you, to listen to God's word. Because if you abandon God's word, you abandon your salvation, right? That's that point right there in the middle. Verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is, we shall not escape if we neglect the word that was attested to us and that has been spoken to us and has also been confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, all right? And of course, the message proved reliable. And we also talked about that last week, right? So now we're, the next section is a bridge between um, this statement about not neglecting the salvation that has been borne witness to us 
And then the beginning of chapter three, all right, so I'm actually going to jump to chapter three. So you can see how that goes. Therefore, you see how it starts? Therefore, that's where that chapter break came from. You know, it was added artificially, but that's where it came from. Therefore, holy brothers, we're going to talk about that. Uh, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So you see, the beginning of chapter 2 had to do with the appointment of the angels, the messengers, and how um, God's apostles, that is his, um, his sent ones, right, uh, bore witness to the faithfulness to the truth and, and testified by signs and wonders and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Bore witness or testified to what truth? To what salvation? Well, chapter 3 answers the question to the salvation we have through Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right. Um, and so then the, the whole narrative is going to shift to answering Jesus. But in between is this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, like a bridge, I guess. So now we can go back to chapter 2, verse 5, and you'll see. All right, see, we're going to do angels. Now, we talked about angels last week, but we're going to transition between the angels of the end of chapter 1 and Jesus in the beginning of chapter 3. All right? Does that follow? Everybody's getting that? Hopefully. Um, good. So um, I would say we, should, we can break it down into three parts. And I think we, we did a little bit on the first part last week, which is verses 5 through 9, which you can see most of that on your screen there, uh, which have to do um, with the sub subordination. That's the word I prefer rather than subjected, but subordination, subordered under the subordination of the world to Jesus. All right, so that's what this has to do with the first section. And then we're going to have a section, uh, just three verses, that have to do um, with the appropriateness of God's perfection in Jesus through his death as the author of salvation. Right? So we're going to hear how Jesus is the author of our salvation and how that is appropriate. All right? And then verses 14 to 18 are going to be the benefits of his incarnation um, for us as human siblings, really, as, as children with him. All right? Now this whole section, so would say verses 5, um, through 18, I would say is one of the strongest or fullest confessions of what we would call the incarnation of Jesus Christ, why God became man in Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, this is a very important question. We ask, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the heart and, and center of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, our confession of faith there. Um, it's really the heart and center of um, the whole festival half of the church year, all the way from um, Advent all the way through. Um, to Easter, the Ascension, and to Pentecost, right? Um, because the, per, the personal work in Jesus is completely bound up in who he is, um, namely as true God and true man, which was, of course, the sermon last week, which uh, you can go back and listen or watch uh, as you have fit David's Lord and David's Son, right? True God and true man. All right, so I made a case for that in the sermon, so I don't need to make a case for it here. Like I said, you can go back and catch that. Um, again, as we talked about last week and we did in chapter one, the same thing is appropriate here for chapter two, that there, there are um, fairly obvious conjunctions, uh, and they're marked by for or now, which is the same word uh, in Greek. So you can see one of those right at the bottom of the screen, now, and putting everything for at the beginning in verse five, right? And then you're also going to see other conjunctions like but, which will come up later, and also since, but and since. So we have this whole 
um, argument, and maybe actually a relatively complicated argument, I suppose, but an argument all the same. So he's trying to make a case for why um, we should consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, right? which is chapter 3. Good. All right, so uh, maybe another thing we should note in this whole section that I think is helpful is that there's some words that are repeated, and we didn't talk about this last week, but it's worth repeating. I'm talking about this week. Um, three times he says all or everything, right? So that uh, superlative word, that inclusive word, all and every, right? So we'll see that three times uh, in chapter eight. You see putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then you see it in verse nine, now putting everything in subjection. And then verse 10, um, well, that's verse eight. It's three times in verse eight, putting everything, putting everything. He left nothing putting everything in subjection to him. You see how that's repeated three times in verse 8. <laughs> it's also in verse 9. Um, uh, Crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering. Da, 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 da. For everyone, a little lower. Is it in verse 9? Yeah, it's there, all or every. Um, and then it'll be in verse 10, in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17. Okay, so I'm making a point there. So you're going to see all or everything. All right, so inclusive. You're going to hear subordinate or subject subjected or subject. You're going to hear that four times. Uh, most of those are here verses five through eight, right? Um, to suffer and suffering, you're going to hear that uh, three times, verses 9, 10, and 18. And then we're going to hear about death, 9, 14, and 15. All right, so suffering and death are at the center of the argument here of why we should consider Jesus Christ. Of course, right? Because suffering and death, of course, are the things that we uh, most struggle with. Um, then there's lots of language about being children or sons or brothers or seed or blood and flesh. So that's that language of kinship, of um, being our brother. So maybe a little bit of a summary. Well, let's actually just read it. We'll skip that. Okay. For it was not to angels that God subjected or... You know what? I'm going to use a different translation. You can follow along on the screen, but I'm going to use a different translation. For it was not to angels that he subordinated the world to come about which we are speaking. But someone has testified in a certain passage saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you oversee him? Okay. You have made him just a little lower than the angels. With glory and honor you have crowned him. You have subordinated all things under his feet. Now, in subordinating everything to him, he left nothing not subordinate to him. Let's see. That subordinate should be in there twice, not nothing outside his control. Hmm. We're missing one of the subordinates there. All right. Um, but we see him who has for just a little while been made lower than the angels, namely uh, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the, of the suffering and death, so that he might taste death by the grace of God for everyone, on behalf of everyone. All right, so, so that he might taste death by the grace of God on behalf of everyone. Now see, their word order really does matter, doesn't it? Because that's a very different connotation than the way the ESV puts it. <clears throat> All right, so there's a question in the chat about why so much repetition. 
Um, well, this is coming from my mother, so uh, you have firsthand experience uh, with why you have to say the same thing over and over and over. I suppose if you watched the um, uh, Supreme, or excuse me, the uh, the uh, Senate hearings with the Supreme Court nominee, um, you also wondered why are especially the Democratic senators asking the same questions over and over and over? She keeps giving the same answer over and over and over. That's precisely why they asked the same question and gave the same examples and ask over multiple days and ask her to repeat herself over and over and over. What are they trying to catch her in doing? In um, either relenting of the answer that she had given and giving them the answer that they're hoping for, or on the other hand, um, trying to catch her in some kind of lie, right? Um, in her case, consistency is actually the key. That's what we want out of a justice. They have a consistent answer. Um, that applies um, in every circumstance and from every possible perspective, right? Uh, and aren't going to be worn down through persistent questioning. Um, of course, I, I saw a meme and I thought it was hilarious. It had to do with uh, the fact that she's a mother of seven. And so uh, she's quite used to children asking her the same question all day, every day. <laughs> uh, but why repetition, right? Um, it, it's the mother of learning as well, right? So not only is he trying to make an emphasis here, uh, the, the teacher, but he's also, um, uh, I was trying to make sure that if this were like, say, preached, which I argue it was, it was a sermon, um, that you didn't miss the point, all right? So in case you missed it before, I'll say it again. He put everything in subjection under his feet. He put everything subordinate. All things are subordinate under him, right? You missed it? All things are subordinate under him. Now having put everything under him, all right? Okay, so over and over, the same thing, just in case you missed it. We did talk about already how verses 6 and 7 and 8, this quote um, from Deuteronomy 32, well, actually from Psalm 8, right? It's Psalm 8. Um, uh, is also, well, here actually, Psalm 5. Um, this is referring to that Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 that we talked about probably two weeks ago, and also maybe um, Daniel chapter 10. Um, this is how Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 goes in the Septuagint, in the Greek version. When the Most High divided the nations, also, as he dispersed the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries and regions of the nations according to the number of God's angels. Remember, so we talked about how um, God's angels were uh, the messengers of the Old Testament, um, but that that was like an extra biblical tradition. But the writer of the Hebrews embraces it and uses it. All right, so now verses 6 through 9. This is a quote from Psalm 8, and it's a beautiful example of um, how we ought to read the Psalms. This is what I wanted to emphasize in this section. Um, okay, so, uh, of course, it was a Psalm that David prayed, um, but the, the, the writer here, or the teacher here, doesn't, isn't really all that concerned about how David understood the Psalm. <laughs> I mean, it was a royal Psalm for David, right, talking about how David uh, had been crowned with glory and honor, and all kingdoms were subject under his feet, right? And that he was a servant, sat a little bit lower than the angels, that he's the son of man. You know, what does God care about such man? Um, so kind of puts the king in his place, as in a place of humility, but also recognizes that the Lord grants him um, praise, right? So uh, I would like to actually um, quote somebody as to how we understand this psalm. Uh, how we might be understanding how the psalm is being used here. He says this, 
In this hymn of praise, the royal psalmist voices his amazement that the Lord, whose majesty transcends heaven and earth, has made his man vice-regent on earth. In royal rank, he is only a little lower than the angels. In royal status, he matches glory and, and, and honor. See that in verse 7? In royal rule, he maintains God's or, uh, order over the land and the animals, the sky and the birds, and the fish in the sea. So, uh, originally it was used liturgically, of course, in the temple, in the divine service of the temple of Jerusalem. And it was used to celebrate God's creation of man and his image, right? So man is made in God's image. Um, that is, he, he bears God's glory and his honor, at least it was originally, right? Um, but now this teacher interprets the psalm prophetically and Christologically, that is, of Christ, in the light of its description to David. All right, so um, again, I'm going to be quoting here. There's four main points that, that are going to be presented here in these, in these verses, all the way through verse 9. So I'll scroll down so you can see this. Right. The first um, is this term, son of man. And I think we talked about that last, last time. But what, what is he getting after uh, son of man here in verse 6? Is that um, the one that he's speaking of, at least this is the way the writer that Hebrews is using it, the one he's speaking of, is the representative man, all right? So if Adam is representative uh, in the way of Romans, in the way uh, of sin and of death, then this man is representative of a true man, all right? So much like Adam, it's contrasted with Adam, though, I would say. Um, so, so there's a contrast being set up here between man and the son of man, right? Man being Adam and the son of man being Jesus. That's where I was going with that, okay. Um, but yet they have kinship because they're both man. So Jesus is like us in every way and yet without sin, right? All right, so there's that distinction. So he's like Adam in every way except without sin. He's, he bears God's image. Um, he's crowned with glory and honor. Um, he's set a little bit lower than the angels, at least in terms of reference to this earth. So just as the world that God created was ruled by Adam as the father of humanity, so the world to come will be ruled by a man rather than the angels. That's what he's getting after here. Um, now, the second point has to do with this little lower than the angels, which I don't think we talked about last time. Mankind. Yeah, um, I think we really need to understand this man in verse 6 as being Adam, which is what man? Adam, which just means man. Um, I know mankind it's trying to be inclusive. It's inclusive language. NIV has quite a bit of that inclusive language. It actually does some violence to the theology, which is why I'm opposed to using that kind of inclusive language, like brothers and sisters, for example. You actually have to do some violence to the whole um, biblical understanding of inheriting um, by saying sons and daughters, for example. Daughters don't inherit, not in the Bible. You don't have to like it, but that's what the Bible teaches. But we're all sons in Jesus. All right, by our baptism. And being sons, we're all inheritors, whether we are male or female, which is, which is actually a much stronger confession, I think, than just saying brothers and sisters and trying to emphasize a gender difference, a sexuality difference, when really the, the distinction is about being inheritors or not. So just as an example. Um, but mankind, it is inclusive. It does include all man. Because, of course, Eve was taken from the man. right? And so um, uh, that word man is actually inclusive historically speaking, grammatically speaking. Um, my mom's here in the, uh, paying attention. Um, this point was driven home in me 
um, in my sixth grade class. My sixth grade um, teacher uh, was old school, even when I was young. Um, I, don't, I think she was already way past retirement age, even when I had her in sixth grade. I might be wrong, because, because when you're a sixth grader, everybody's really old. But um, she drove this home, actually, the grammar. She was vehemently opposed to um, gender-inclusive language and said, man means all mankind. It means, it includes both, both genders. And so uh, uh, I remember this in uh, English class that she taught, that uh, if we didn't know the gender of the person we were speaking about, rather than say it or they, um, that we'd actually say he. And, and it's stuck with me ever since then. But actually, in regards to the scriptures, it's, it's essential, really. Okay. It looks like the internet's doing all right, so that's good. All right, back to this point. Uh, verse 7. You made him a little lower, a little lower. Um, so this is not, um, well, it could be qualitative, like less in rank, or it could be um, temporally, as in for a short stretch of time. So a little shorter or a little bit um, you know, lower in rank. I would argue that it has to do um, with time. You made him for a little while, like you see there on your translation, lower than the angels, right? Referring to his humiliation, which was temporary, uh, before his bodily exaltation, that is upon the cross. All right, so you see that. So we pull that point out. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. I, I had, I have incredible respect. Um, I, I probably still have scars on my, uh, my hands from, from the, uh, my, both my third grade teacher and my sixth grade teacher like to use the ruler. In the old, like in the old days, um, oh, she, I think she gave up on my handwriting though. Uh, she was trying to drill that home, and she did not get it. But uh, yeah, sixth grade was a transition point for me because that's also when they changed the translation of the catechism, and then everything went downhill from there for me. <laughs> I came to that third. All right, um, the third point has to do with the lowliness and the exaltation of Jesus. Right, so you made him a little bit lower, but now you've crowned him with glory and honor. So we have. That being set up from Psalm 8 here as well, with humiliation and exaltation. All right, the temporary humiliation, that is, to become man and, and rule upon this earth, to his coronation as, as, what do you want to call him, the cosmic king of the heavens and the earth, of, of the whole universe, and of the age to come. So, um, I'm going to quote here again. After God had made his son, the son of man, lower than the angels for a short time in world history, he crowned him as his human co-regent so that his human brothers could be vice-regents. So co-regents, that means Jesus rules with the Father. Vice-regents means we rule under him but also rule um, in the age to come. So God's original purpose for humanity reaches its goal by the glorification of his human body. That is the human body of the Son of Man, that is Jesus. And then the last point, of course, is that he puts everything in sub subordination under his feet. Right, so that he rules the heavens and the earth and everything therein, all things and all people, and also going back to chapter one, all the angelic powers, right, all the angels as well. For a little while, the angels, um, in a sense, rule over him—not really, but you know, um, in in order, are in heaven um, and serve him. But then later, um, all is put under his feet. So you see how we read this psalm. How he reads this psalm. See, he's named here in verse nine, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death, right? So that's also important to note um, that here in verse 9, you see that after a little while, that his 
crowning with glory and honor, I think we talked about this last week, is actually at the cross. Jesus is most king for you at his cross, where he gives his life for you, his friends. All right? Because um, I think most people think of the triumphant Jesus, the crowned Jesus being the one, you know, who's ruling from the heavens and, you know, the clouds and the angels are around him. And that, that's the crown. No, it's, it's actually at the cross. Where, where uh, Jesus is at his um, most glorious is when, to our eyes, he's the least glorious. Think back to our study of 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, a scandal and a stumbling block, as we talked about. Um, since God has subordinated everything in this new world to the Son of Man, there is nothing that isn't subordinate to him. You see that in verse 8, right? But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, this is a really important point. I think we talked about it last week. It's worth remembering again this week, that there's this sense of now and not yet. Um, my teacher called, uh, at seminary, one of my teachers called this inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated means it's been brought into existence, but it's still of the last day, so it's not something we yet see. All right? Everything is in subjection to Jesus now. Right? That includes you, your flesh, includes sin, death, and the devil. The devil is God's devil. He's subordinated to Jesus already. Jesus has already defeated him by his cross. Right? And yet we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It seems as if the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Right? Seeking someone to devour, by the way, it doesn't say devouring those whom he will. Uh, he has no power over you. You are Christ, right? It's only in that you hand over um, the reins, you know, hand over the wheel to him that he has any control. Um, but he's God's devil. Even sin has been brought into subjection. God uses sin now to, to, for about, to bring about the greatest good, that you would repent, believe in him, in the gospel, right? For the forgiveness of sins. Beautiful, right? Um, and even death. What has he done with death? He's made it asleep, you know, a slumber, so that you can wait peacefully until the resurrection of all flesh, right? Um, so all things have been brought into subjection to him, and yet we do not see all things, that is, with our eyes and with our senses, as being subjected to him. And notice it's we, so, he's, so you can hear how he's preaching to the Christian congregation. He's preaching to you, right? Um, this, again, would have been preached in the context of divine service. So, um, so the congregation would look around. They'd look around to the world. They'd see chaos and disorder. They'd see uh, you know, leaked um, tapes. We'd see politicians. Not, I don't even, it's not even mudslinging. I don't even know what it is. I guess they're, they're like slinging bombs at each other right now, right? And will be for the next 20 days. It's going to be terrible, right? And we see all that and we say, and, and then there's, there's the COVID thing. And then there's... Um, Oh, I don't know. There's the school lockdown. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on, right? And it seems like everything's just going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. And yet, we believe that all these things that are happening around us are in subjection to Jesus. And he's working all of these things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You're like, how can both things be true at the same time? One is by faith. One is by sight, right? And by sight, we see hell. By faith, we know that God is working all of this for our blessing, right? Um, what is that blessing? Well, most importantly, it's repentance for the sake of forgiveness of sins, right? Um, but where there's repentance, there's also this idea of um, talking about death here, right? So that 
he might taste death by the grace of God for everyone. Right? So uh, we talked about this in Sunday Bible study, uh, which you can go back and listen to as well. Um, you can't watch it, but you can go back and listen to it. It's on our website. I forgot to tell you what page that's on. So if you go to our website, stjohnrandomlake.org, stjohnrandomlake.org, uh, and it's probably under church live streaming, okay? Now, ironically, this is not live anymore, um, although this is live, what we're watching right now. If you scroll down to the audio podcast, you'll see uh, Gospel of St. John, chapter 13, verses 21 and following. Uh, join us each divine service. All right. So, what were we talking about? Oh, yes, we talked about it in, on Sunday Bible study that Jesus has blazed the trail for us. He's already gone the way. Well, here, it's very explicit that he's already tasted death for everyone by the grace of God, right? So that we don't, we don't fully taste death, right? Um, so, I like the way that uh, this commentary says it. Oh, I don't even know where to start. It's so good. All right, by the grace of God, Jesus suffered death so that he might taste death on behalf of everyone. God's grace is not evident in Jesus' death as such, but in his vicarious death on behalf of every person on earth. Right, that he died your death. He brought the Son of Man so low in order to raise man so high together with him. He who was by right God's Son suffered death on behalf of everyone so that by God's grace they could become his sons, something that did that did not by right belong to them, and that through his death, his death for them and their death with him. So by their vision of Jesus, they gain a vision of themselves through him. As they behold Jesus put to death on their behalf, they also see themselves sharing in his royal status. All this stuff is layered on top of each other, right? Through his exaltation, they are destined to share in his glory and honor as God's royal sons, his vice regal heirs with him of the world to come. So this is the expression, and I think this is the perfect way to understand this now and not yet. That their vision, your vision, is bifocal. Now I have progressive lenses, but uh, some of you probably have bifocals, right? Um, so on the one hand, though they are doomed to die, that's, they see that, they also share in the glory of God's Son. We see both things at the same time. As a man of flesh and blood, he's able to taste death fully for them in this age so that they may taste life fully with him in the new age. All right. Now let's move on to verse 10. And I don't think we read this last week, so we better read, read this. I'm trying to think how far I want to go on that. So much. For it was fitting that he, for, notice, again, we talked about this conjunction, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Oh, I want to use my translation. Let me try this again. For it was proper for him, that's pretty close, for whom and by whom all things are, in bringing many sons to glory, so good so far, to make the founder or pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings, plural, by the way, not suffering singular, for both the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, being, by the way, present, um, present perfect, are all from one person, from one, not source, 
<sighs> ESV, from one, and that's a person. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing of you. Ooh. And again, scroll up here. I myself will put my trust in him. And again, see, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Ooh, it's all this language of children. Beautiful stuff. All right, so let's talk about it. For it was proper. Yeah, for him and whom by all things are. So now we're talking about Yahweh, right? We're talking about the Lord, Adonai, um, the one who is. Where do we see that? Where does it The one who is. Yeah, that's a good way to translate that. Um, we're talking about the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is not some kind of abstract philosophical or moral kind of picture. All right. This is actual real flesh and blood Jesus dying. <laughs> Um, to bring salvation to his people on earth. That's what we're seeing here. So we have um, the one who has been made a little lower than the angels, right? The one who is the very word that the Father spoke to bring all things into being and who continues to bring all things into being would, by, by his suffering and death, bring many sons to glory. That is, to, to make you sons with him in his glory. And notice he's the, he's the perfecter, um, or not founder, I should say, the founder. Um, you could say the, the chief leader. It, the word here is uh, archagos, uh, which is connected to um, arche here, uh, for it is fitting that he, or whom, where is the arche there? Where did they change that? The beginning, um, the arche. Well, it's not quoted there, but it's implied, right? The beginning of all things. Um, here he is, the, the beginner. Who is the one who makes the beginning? I don't know what you want to call that. The pioneer, I guess. That is the right. That is a good translation. Or the founder. All right. Should founder be also the, then the founder of the salvation of faith, right? The finisher, if you like, as well. So not only is he the beginner, he's the finisher. And he gives it all. Yeah, there's the finisher, the teleo, teleao, excuse me, uh, through, but he does it all through suffering, through uh, pothema in Greek. It's incredible, right? That he made all things by his word, but he actually saves all through suffering, through, his, through being man, being human. Right? So we have uh, kind of an incredible transposition there. Of, of true God and true man. But we've talked about that at quite some length already. Uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? He's the captain. That'd be a good word too, right? Founder, captain. See that in verse 10? I think that would work. Um, now we've been studying this in the Old Testament, but I think it's worth remembering too. We've talked quite a bit about Moses. Now we've had Aaron die in our morning congregation of prayer. Um, ultimately though, Moses, you know, he struck the right rock twice rather than just speak the word to the rock, and so he doesn't enter the promised land. Who enters the promised land? It's Joshua, which, by the way, is the same name as Jesus. It's just two different pronunciations, right? Um, so Jesus is the pioneer leader, like Moses, who delivers um, from slavery, 
which we'll see here in a few verses. But unlike Joshua, he brings them not only into the promised land, but the place of divine rest, of Sabbath rest, which we'll see in verse in chapter four. Uh, and then he leads the way not only into a place of heaven or of divine rest, but into the heavenly sanctuary, which is in chapter nine and chapter ten. So we have Jesus being this um, this grand leader, really here. Not only the one who makes all things, but leads all things. Old King James says captain of salvation. Yeah, captain's a good word too. I like that. Chief leader, captain. Um, We're going to see here in a minute, he's going to be the chief high priest as well. The chief priest, which is the high priest, the RK. I forget the the word, but we'll get to it. All right. Now, um, he has, God has made Jesus the perfect man through sufferings. Okay. Now, um, perfect is kind of a messy word. It's an Aristotelian word, but um, the idea is the completed man, the full full man, if you like. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to scroll. There we go. All right. Um, so this is all connected. The suffering ends up being, yeah, author of salvation works okay too. Um, this suffering ends up being his priestly service. Now that's interesting, right? How does he serve his people? He does it through suffering right? His suffering and death ends up being the thing that takes the place of all the priestly sacrifices and all the priestly acts of the Old Testament. So not only is he a high priest, but he's also the royal leader, right, who rescues from slavery um, and, and delivers the people into the promised land. So we have both things put on top of each other, where he's the, he's the true king and he's also the true priest. And all of this um, is all bound up right here. Because well, we had coronation too, just a few verses before with the, with the, with the crown. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what, he, what, what is the benefit of all of this. Um, you see here in verse 11, for he sanctifies, he makes holy those who are being sanctified. Again, this is present passive. So we need that being in there. It's present passive. Um, it's a participle. So that means uh, present, a passive participle present passive participle works like this you he started your sanctification and it's still ongoing he's still sanctifying he's still making you holy again this is a sermon it's being preached in the congregation and god is continually making you holy of course through his suffering that is through forgiveness of sins that was purchased and won by his suffering and death as we say in the catechism um so he who sanctifies excuse me and those who are being sanctified all have one origin that all comes from one and who is that jesus <laughs> jesus is the one who sanctifies and jesus is the source of sanctification this is a very important thing because sometimes people think to be sanctified or holy is to be um, to live an obedient perfect life right that's jesus's job um, certainly god's law and by the gift of the spirit works um to, to some degree in our lives um, holiness, right? Righteousness, right? But it is, it does, it's not a righteousness that saves. He is the one and only source of holiness, and he is the only one then who makes people and things holy, all right? Now, he does that. He mediates that holiness through means, right? So we have uh, forgiveness of sins, as we talked about. In the Old Testament, it was the anointing of oil, right? And we had um, blood put upon uh, the people and upon the altars. We had uh, washings with water that would sanctify or, or make holy. We heard about uh, in our morning prayers, we heard about the uh, Aaron going into the midst of the people with with the incense 
um, to separate them, to make them holy. All right. But now this sanctification refers to Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, to, to, as far as the, I see the comment about grammar, I did not remember my grammar until I had to learn Greek. And then it, thankfully, it, it, uh, there was enough of it residing yet in my sight and my memory um, that I could actually recall this grammar. Uh, but grammar is important. I can't read the Bible without knowing some grammar. Sorry, just part of the deal. Yes, and so Mrs. R would be proud, I hope. Uh, if I learned anything, not good handwriting, but hopefully I remember some of that grammar. I can't really diagram sentences, though. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so now Jesus is the source. He's the origin of sanctification. None of that ritual stuff that was in the Old Testament, right? And he does it. Um, he mediates it himself, not through, not through people and not through means, but directly through his word. All right, and so that's very important. Now, right now, this origin of sanctification isn't going to be explained at all. It says it all has one source, but he's just dropping that. He's going to come back to it later, and we're going to find out um, that the common source is actually Adam. We all have one source because he's true man and we're true man, but we'll get to that later on. On uh, chapter three, this is why Jesus, to quote chapter three, is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not, well, right here, chapter two, he's not ashamed to call them brothers because they have been sanctified. They've been set apart by his perfect suffering. He who is the author, the, the captain, the founder, the, um, what was the other word I used? The something of salvation, um, the chief leader, if you like, of salvation. All right. So now we've got some more quotations. So earlier in the sermon of the congregation, we heard the voice of God as he addressed Jesus. That was back in uh, chapter one. All right, now we hear the voice of Jesus as he speaks to us ah, in the divine service. Quoting from the Old Testament, but now quoting them as oracles of, of Jesus. Uh, his spoken words talking about us, his brothers. Beautiful, right? So um, the, the vision I think he's trying to evoke here is Jesus is now standing before you speaking to you directly. Right, immediate, right, without any of no mediator, but simply directly to you. And uh, he's speaking to them, to God about them, about you, and to you about him, himself. So there's this whole dialogue happening, and it's right in front of you. No temple curtain, no, um, you know, Moses or Aaron or someone standing between you. This first quote comes from Psalm 22. Um, you know Psalm 22 quite well. It's the psalm that Jesus prayed from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Um, this is a different um, verse. This is verse 22 of Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, isn't that amazing? If you just read this verse alone out of context, you would say, oh, that sounds nice. He'll tell of my name to the brothers in the midst of the congregation. He will sing. He, Jesus, will sing our praises. But we've already heard in the psalm how he was forsaken by God and how he gave up his life. Maybe we should go to Psalm 22. Let's do that so you can see this. That's only on Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry to you, right? Now Jesus is praying this to the cross. They cried and were rescued and they, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Remember, Jesus is praying this on the cross. Of course, we see it all fulfilled 
in the narration of, of the Gospels. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. By the way, it's Matthew and Mark who quote this psalm. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Mm, remember that? Yet ye, uh, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Right? On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But be not far from me for trouble is near. And there's none to help. All right, then we have the bulls and the roaring lions. He's, he's being poured out like water. His bones are out of joint, literally. His heart is like wax. It's melted. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I thirst, right? You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. That's Gentiles, the Romans. A company of evildoers, the Jews, encircles me. Of course, here is quite obvious. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. I mean, if this isn't a vivid um, psalm uh, of Christ's suffering and death. We pray it actually on Monday Thursday when we strip the altar, by the way. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So you have all these images from the Old Testament being um, metaphors of the grave that Christ will be in. And of course, uh, the Father will rescue him from death. You know, think of uh, like Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. Then is the verse that we hear quote. Then, right? We're going to add that conjunction here. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. All right, and then it's to you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob. All right. And then there's more. You know, all these songs of praise at the end. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow down, or shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, referring to himself. All right. I love the ending of it, though. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It is finished. Perfect tense. Completed. All right? Isn't that beautiful? So you want to take that all into account. Um, Oh, let's not go to Hebrews 11. Let's go to Hebrews 2, verse 11. There we go. I'm going to take that all into account with this little quote. (laughs) So he's connecting... Again, that you are brothers with him by his cross, by his suffering and death, all right? By his perfect suffering, which you just saw. And then again, another quote. Um, now we have a quote from, I guess we could say it's Isaiah 8. I think that's what's suggested here in my notes, yeah. Um, but it's really a quote then also from perhaps Second Samuel 22, uh, which is probably quoting Psalm 8. So let's look at Second Samuel. 22, uh, verse, yeah, three. Here we go. The, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. All right, do we hear that? I will put my trust in him. Yeah, it's only in this in the Greek version. Um, so let's look at Isaiah 8, then, which I think is actually more explicit. Didn't go far enough. Here it is. Mm, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. 
There we go. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. There it is. All right, so this is all the Lord speaking to Isaiah, quote, right? Um, and actually, verse 18 is probably worth looking at. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So there we have the children language as well. All right, so here Jesus is speaking. Let's go back to Hebrews 2, verse 11. There we go. Um, here Jesus is speaking both as messianic king and messianic prophet because he's assuming Isaiah into himself as well. All right. Um, he's confessing his faith in God, who has given him the victory over his enemies, and he also con- confesses his faith in God's acceptance of him and all those who are in him. That's you, his sons. So again, Isaiah originally spoke this about himself and his children, his disciples, um, but now Jesus um, brings that into bearing about himself and saying that it was referring to the Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, let's see what else we can do here. And uh, verse 13 we did, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. There's, there's that Isaiah. Um, I think this is, I, I mean, I guess it's verse 17. Um, but Psalm 18, verse 2, is uh, similar to that Second Samuel text. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust. I will trust. Yeah. All right. What else do we want to talk about? Maybe two things that we want to note here. Um, Jesus is presenting himself to the congregation in the midst of the divine service as the faithful king who puts his trust in God alone for himself and his kinsfolk, right? So he's the true son of David. You want to put it that way. Um, He's the author and finisher of our faith, as we will see in in chapter 12. And then they depend on him as well um, for faith in God. He's the merciful and uh, faithful high priest who intercedes for you. Second, Jesus presents you, his brothers, to the world as God's gifts to him. Right? Behold, I and the children God has given me are presented then and presented forth. He doesn't stand alone before God and the world in the divine service, but he stands together with you and all God's children, his holy royal family that has been given to him, and he's proud of you. (laughs) And this is really helpful, right? That he, if he presents you before God the Father as being his children with him, um, you know, that we learn to sing the song that we talked about here. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. That he actually not only prays or intercedes for us before God the Father, but he even sings songs of praises on behalf of us whom he has redeemed. That's just really an amazing image. Um, and I don't know that I've really thought about it too much until now. Um, but that we're all singing together with him of, of his praise, but as we sing of his praise, he's also singing our praises before the Father. So um, we're hearing as a congregation, not just Jesus naming us as his brothers so that we can name God together with him in our song of praise, but we also see Jesus standing in the midst of us, his royal brothers, and we're all standing before God as God's holy children. And right there in the middle is our intercessor who's also singing God's praises. He's like our big brother, I guess, is what we would say, right? Which is just seeing Jesus at the head of of a whole brotherhood of man, just beautiful. Oh yeah, that reminds me that uh, apparently the uh, 
uh, what is it? Uh, it's the SEALs or, or maybe it's the Marines as in general that they, they've, they've adopted non-gender neutral language now too. They're not, they, they're not supposed to use the term brotherhood anymore. They're supposed to refer to like, um, the fellowship or something. I don't remember what word they replaced it with. It's really kind of, I think it's unfortunate there too. Not, not that, um, women are serving amongst, um, the military, however you feel about that, um, positive or negative, but um, to lose that fraternity. I mean, that word brotherhood uh, implies fraternity, that we die for each other, right? Uh, which we just don't have that language uh, attached to the feminine. All right. Ooh, we have a lot to go. Well, let's see how we can do here. All right. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, right? That is, he became flesh and blood. Did I read that part already? No, I haven't read that part. So, since the children have flesh and blood in common, he himself similarly shared in the same things. Namely, through, all right, scrolled again, through death, right? He shares in flesh and blood so that through death he would disempower him, destroy the one who has, disempower the one, the devil, um, who has the power of death, right? So, by dying death, he destroys the power of death. And he de, what do you want to say? Disempowers the devil, the one who has power to bring death. Got that? So again, this is one of those, this is a super helpful confession of why God became man. So that he could die. So that God died. And God dying, he destroyed the power of death. Paul talks about this too. Um, then notice what he does. To deliberate or to deliver, to liberate, um, all those who through the fear of death, you notice it's the fear of death, the phobia, were held in slavery throughout their whole life. Subject, sub, actually, yeah, subject or held in slavery throughout their whole life, through lifelong slavery, right? So notice, Jesus having destroyed death now has freed you not only from death, but even the fear of death. Oh, uh, what is this world to me with all its vaunted pleasures, right? So, I mean, I think that's, we, we forget about this. And I think we've especially forgotten about this. Sorry if this is controversial. In the midst of COVID-19, everybody's afraid of dying from a virus um, that is no more terminal than the seasonal flu. I'm sorry, those are the stats. Those weren't the stats in March. Those are the stats as of today. Even aggregate stats, that is, all the deaths, including all those nursing home deaths in California, New York, and uh, Michigan, all of those deaths, even from March, even the, the worst possible, the 40,000 nursing home deaths in New York, we put all of those numbers into the 215,000 or whatever it is today, all right? And you're still, even the most elderly person is still less than 5% likely to die from the disease if they contract it, or the virus, if they get the virus, less than 5%, right? Flu and pneumonia, cancer kills 10 times as many people. Well, not 10 times, eight times as many people, right? Every year. What are you so afraid of? It's, it's actually an artificial inflated fear of death. And it's being used to manipulate and to control a population. Okay? Not controversial. The governors are out front talking about this. The, those governors that are still locking down. 
They want you to be afraid and to live in fear because they can use fear to control you. Right? And what does Jesus say here? He has delivered you from the fear of death. What if you die? Oh, you'll leave some people behind. Yes, of course. It'll be terrible for those who are left behind. Absolutely. Right? And in here, it's not like you're even 5% of the population, 4%, 2% of the population. No. It's 0.1% of the population will die from this disease. 0.1 at most. And that's taking into account the terrible policies of those governors that put COVID-positive people in nursing homes, killing many people who are vulnerable to the disease. All right, so don't be afraid. That's all I'm saying. Jesus says it right here. (laughs) He's delivered you. (sighs) Yes. The question is, so is it because of faithfulness that people fear? Yes. Now, of course, we're all faithless and faithful. Even when we're faithless, Jesus is faithful to us. I think that's important. That's from, I think, Philippians or Colossians, Colossians, I believe. Um, Can verse 14 be used to show that Jesus went to hell to proclaim victory? Um, Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess we could apply it to that. I don't think it's explicit or even implicit there. Um, But if um, he has victory over the devil, then he has, I mean, he made this hell is the place that's been separated or, or set apart for the devil and his angels because of their rebellion, right? He doesn't want anybody, any person to be in hell. He died for them, right? Um, so he declares victory to the souls in prison. Um, that's referring to Sheol, which is a Hebrew idea, which is kind of this in, intermediate state between, it's not hell, but it's not heaven. All right, kind of a weird thing. Yeah. So God's calling us to repentance, right? And he's doing it right now through this word. He's like, don't live in fear. Take precautions. Act responsibly. Do the things that you would do with any kind. If you're sick, stay home. All the normal things, right? Uh, now in March, I think it was responsible that to, in April, maybe even, it was, res- it was responsible of us to act differently because we didn't know. China was lying to us, for example, about the severity of the disease. Um, other nations were having a pretty hard time of it because of their practices or policies. Um, and frankly, today, we have uh, a better idea of what the disease is and how it works. That's why we have therapeutics and uh, potentially vaccines in the future as well. Not a fan of vaccines, um, much more a fan of therapeutics. I say, take your vitamin A, take your vitamin D, uh, get some sunlight, go for a walk, uh, eat well, uh, exercise, and you'll probably be just fine. And if not, the Lord has you and he's defeated death for you. And so eternal life is yours. Okay? Uh, Yeah. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. It's not angels that he helps. Now, remember, we were talking about angels, but um, mankind, right? But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Oh, that's beautiful, right? Because who did he make the promise to? Abraham, by your seed, all, all the people of the earth will be named. I will make of you a great nation, right? And that's what he's talking about right here. How does he make his great nation? He does it through his, he made it, makes it complete or perfect through his suffering. He brings all people. Right? He's not taking hold of angels. There's no need to save angels. He takes hold of all the children of Abraham, all those who are waiting and living in faith, which we'll talk about by faith later on. Of course, the faith of Abraham. So this is a little bit looking forward to something that's going to come later on. Um, I'm talking about faith in Abraham. Um, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's be like made like you in every respect. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in relation to the things of God. In order to atone for the sins of the people, propitiation is fine. Elaskamai is the, is the form here. Elaskamai, I think is how it goes normally. For since he himself, having been tested, has suffered, uh, namely suffered death, it's implied here, not just his, uh, the pain that led up to his death, but actually his death. He has the power to help those who are being tested. Oh yeah, when tempted, sorry. Having been tested, suffered death. All right, so there's all sorts of things we could talk about here. It's already 8.03. What do we want to talk about? What do we want to talk about? I think we should leave 17 and 18 and pick up there and let that lead us into chapter three. All right. So we'll we'll come back to that because there's a lot that I'd like to cover there. Um, notice he introduces the idea of a high priest. And we say that the faithful, merciful and faithful um, chief priest, Archeoros, actually in Greek. Yeah, chief priest. Um, compare the high priest of old to Jesus, the high priest. I want to leave you with this and let you think about this. All right, so the order of the priesthood in the, in the Old Testament came through Aaron, right? The Levitical priest. Now, what we're going to find out later in this book is that Jesus is of a different order, not of Aaron, but he's of the order, the royal priest in the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. We're going to talk about it in three chapters in a row. All right, so he, he's, he's uh, stepping outside the Aaronic priesthood, and he's a very different kind of priest. Uh, what's his covenant? What's the foundation? Uh, the first covenant in the Old Testament right? Do this and you will live. Now in the second or better covenant, it's a covenant by his blood. Um, when was the Old Testament priest instituted? By the law of Moses. Christ the high priest is instituted by a better promise. Chapter 8. Um, the Old Testament priests were installed by human right, according to the law. But Jesus is appointed, he's installed by a royal oath, a divine oath by God. Right? He's the one who's been set apart by God the Father to do this work. The Old Testament priests were temporary and, of course, limited by death. We heard about Aaron dying and then his son Eleazar, right, took over for him or were appointed by God. Jesus, on the other hand, as high priest, is eternal and enduring. He continues to serve. We are being sanctified, right? Um, you know, how effective was the high priest service in the Old Testament? Well, it was limited because they were mortal men with human weaknesses. And we find out over and over, we keep bumping into priests who just don't quite get the priest job done very well. Whereas Jesus is ever-living and full of power because he has an indestructible life. So very different. The priests of old served on earth. The pre- Jesus, the high priest, serves in heaven at God's right hand, as we heard back in chapter 1 and we'll hear again many times. Uh, where does the Old Testament priest serve? In a man-made tent, right? Uh, with its two shrines. Right? So the altar of incense and then the most holy place. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is the place <laughs> in his own body, right? He is the more perfect tent. He is the one not made with hands, right? He's the true place of worship. Jesus himself is the place of worship. Um, we had earthly sanctuaries with the Old Testament priests, right? The earthly places, the tent moved, and then ultimately the temple. But now Jesus, the holy place, is the holy, the heavenly holy places. We'll see that in chapter 9. The Old Testament service was a copy of the heavenly service. We see that um, exposed later on in the book, chapter 8 and chapter 10. 
whereas Jesus is actually performing the liturgical service of heaven in our midst now, right? Rather than a copy or a pale imitation, it's the fullness of it now. Uh, the, pre- the Old Testament priest stood before God, and now Jesus stands at God's right hand to serve us, right? Um, what about offerings? The Old Testament offerings that the high priest offered were domesticated animals who were offered as burnt offerings, as sin offerings, as peace offerings, or grain offerings, right? Now, Jesus is the offering. He himself, by his own body, his own flesh, is the offering for sin and for peace and the burnt offering. And then atonement, right? So that's the uh, blood covering. Um, In the Old Testament, the high priest would offer repeated sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of all the people. But now Jesus is the sinless priest whose single sacrifice is enough to cover the sins of all people. And of course, he needs to make no sacrifice for his own sins, right? So we have this incredible contrast that's being set up and it's being anticipated right here in chapter two. And it's going to spin out all the way through to chapter 12. All this stuff about Jesus being our priest, which is why it's been so helpful in our morning prayers um, to be considered, having considered Exodus and then Leviticus and now Numbers. We're going to consider Deuteronomy to hear all of that. in flesh so that we can see when, when Jesus comes, how he fulfills all of it. So we'll dig more into chapter se- verses 17 and 18 next week, and then we'll move on to chapter three. All right, good. So uh, thanks for jumping in on the chat. Good to have you all here. And it uh, looks like the internet worked moderately well. <laughs> Only 13.3% of my frames dropped, so just a little skippy. And uh, you can join us, of course, tomorrow morning for our Congregation of Prayer. Um, and if you're watching this on delay, uh, feel free to post comments below and I'll try to respond as best I can. So have a blessed evening and we'll see you uh, in the morning.